And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day in the very, very center of the nomination struggle for the Republican Party. Uh, Yes, uh, there's a great likelihood that the nominee for president for the third time in a row will be a guy named Donald Trump. Uh, But is that a completely done deal? Well, not so fast. Uh, says David Drucker of the Dispatch. He is a uh, a veteran uh, correspondent who uh, a columnist, commentator, uh, the author of the book In Trump's Shadow, which is posted at our website at michaelmedved.com, and uh, his most recent columns in the Dispatch also are linked at our website at michaelmedved.com. He uh, talks about the future of Nikki Haley, who we just spent time campaigning with, not for her, but covering the campaign in South Carolina. Uh, Were you at all surprised by the outcome of the primary in South Carolina, David Drucker, or did it go uh, uh, particularly, especially the way you thought that it would? No, I don't think there's any surprise there. Uh, look, she she lost by 20 points, and given the expectations, that wasn't so bad. But it was still a pummeling by Donald Trump. They were able to call this race uh, within minutes of the polls closing. I think Nikki Haley may have won three counties. Um, I and she she incidentally, uh, Michael, won the Charleston area first congressional district, which is uh, Nancy Mace's congressional district. So that was kind of as a side note, kind of interesting. But look, uh, Nikki Haley, it's a very generous introduction from you, but Nikki Haley really has an uphill climb. I mean, the, the odds of her winning the nomination are uh, extremely low. I think what's more interesting about her campaign, uh, aside from the fact that she's continued to campaign when most uh, people in her position would have dropped out, is, is how voters that support her are responding to it. Uh, she still is raising money at a pretty healthy clip, as far as we can tell. And, look, I talked to voters in South Carolina last week. Some of them still have hope that she can uh, pull off a you know, a miracle. But others said that they understood that her odds were long, but that they didn't care. They wanted her to keep fighting, that the message she is carrying, which really represents a pre-Trump, you know, Reagan-era Republican Party, is something that they wish still existed, still want. And they're glad somebody is fighting for it and representing their version of what the party should be. And and that's why she keeps getting crowds. I, I don't think people are walking in. You know, they, they can look at a poll as well as you and I can. And, you know, little by little, the more we report about the delegate count and how this thing's likely to go on Super Tuesday, they're, they're aware of what's probably going to happen. And yet they want her to stick with it because they don't like the alternative. And it's not a matter of, the old days when, well, I've got my favorite candidate and you said mean things about him or her or whatever. It's more like, I don't like that version of the party. It feels like a different party to me. So I'm so glad you're sticking up for our faction and stick with it as long as you can, because it makes me feel like there's hope for the future. Well, apparently in the exit polling, uh, and she did get 40%. And of that 40%, 
uh, more than a fifth, close to a fourth, so close to 10% of all the people who voted, uh, said they do not intend to vote for Trump even if uh, in November, even if he is the nominee. And when you put that together with some of the uh, exit polling from uh, that that uh, we have from South Carolina and some of the entrance polling they have from Iowa and from New Hampshire, uh, it shows that that uh, a very substantial number of the people who even voted for Trump have said that if he is convicted of uh, any of the felonies that that he's facing trial on with four different cases, uh, that if he's convicted of anything, they also don't think he's fit to be president. So is it possible that, that basically there is an assumption that she's sort of a fail-safe, that she's hanging around to see how these legal issues go and whether Trump really is non-viable? Well, I think that's part of part of why she's uh, hanging around. I think that's certainly something that some Republican voters, uh, they look at what she's doing and look at her that way. Um, but, you know, I would, I would caution that, that we always get reports with divisive presidential primaries that that or we see numbers that suggest that the the front runner is going to have trouble because some some set of, of voters in, in his or her party won't vote for them. And there are all these hypotheticals that are polled. If this, then that. Therefore, uh, this you know candidate won't get support. I think it's way too early to hang our hat on that. I think it shows us potential vulnerabilities. Let's see where voters are three, four five months from now. If, in fact, it's, you know, Trump and Biden plus a host of third party candidates, and what are you going to do? It, but I, I, I would say that, you know, given how polarizing Donald Trump is when we're just talking about, you know, his issues, right? We could talk about Biden for hours. He's got lots of vulnerabilities um, on his side with his coalition. But if we're just looking at Trump, sure, there are all sorts of red flags. It's one of the reasons why he doesn't do as well in polling versus Joe Biden as, as Nikki Haley does. You know, you know, he's not doing too badly, um, which has hurt her ability to make an electability case against him. Um, but there are Republican voters, they regular Republican voters, and that's a lot of who I talked to last week, who, you know, Donald Trump is no longer a curiosity or an outsider. He's an entrenched politician, and they don't like him. And some of them said, I'll vote for him anyway. But others said, I just can't anymore. And, and I said, well, then what are you going to do? And they would say, well, I can't vote for Biden. I said, then what? They're like, I don't know. I have no idea what I'm going to do. It's a, to- it's a horrible dilemma, and I might just leave the whole thing blank and vote for Congress and you know, vote for Senate and all of that stuff. What about the, uh, the idea that – it clearly, what it shows in the exit polling from South Carolina is that a majority of people in South Carolina believe that Trump won the election of 2020. But yeah, yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. Lots but that's of Republican people voting in the Republican. That. That's people voting in the Republican primary. When it comes to voters in America at large, uh, more than two thirds of the people in the country at large uh, believe that. Joe Biden is the president, and he's legitimate, right? So, Well, he does. But by the way, what I found interesting, Michael, is that the percentage of people, of, of people who voted in that primary that believe Donald Trump won in 2020 
was much was larger than the percentage that Haley got or that, that Trump got in that. In other words, Haley clearly got votes from people who thought Biden didn't win that election. Right. So this is just pervasive in the Republican Party. And it's one of the reasons why when you make the argument that Trump can't win and look at all of the things that have gone wrong uh, under his leadership politically, losing the House, losing the Senate, losing the White House, it, it, it never sticks to him with Republican primary voters writ large because they just don't think anything's his fault or that he did anything wrong or that he lost. So they don't have to consider – You know, I remember – after the Reagan and Bush years, right, you remember this, and the Democratic Party went through a soul-searching, and Bill Clinton emerged as this sort of third-way new Democrat, because they all got together and said, we gotta, we got to win back the White House. It's been 12 years. We have to do something differently. We've been losing. And you tell Republican voters, what are you going to do? You've been losing. And they say, what do you mean we've been losing? We haven't lost anything. <laughs> David Drucker, his columns posted at our uh, website, michaelmedved.com. He also writes uh, in the book, In Trump's Shadow. You can also find out about that at michaelmedved.com. When we come back, uh, what really happened at CPAC? And who won the straw poll for vice president? We'll get to that and more coming up. Here's a special discount, 50% off just for being a MedHead annual member. Join today at michaelmedved.com. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, they did take a straw poll as to who should be the nominee for vice president. That was at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action uh, Caucus, with a gathering in uh, National Harbor, Maryland. And uh, it, it turns out that Governor Christy Noem of South Dakota... And the entrepreneur, as they describe him, Vivek Ramaswamy, tied for the chop choice to uh, be former President Donald J. Trump's running mate in a straw poll that took place on Saturday at the uh, prominent gathering of conservative activists. And uh, honestly, uh, obviously, Christy Noam who has been a member of the U.S. Congress. She served three terms as the sole congressman from the state of South Dakota. Uh, she is in the middle of her second term as governor of South Dakota. Uh, she, I think, would be a very credible and effective candidate. Uh, she's great on TV. She speaks well. She has uh, some criticisms from uh, her constituents back home, but she'd be a strong running mate seems to me, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who has never run, has never won any elective office at all, uh, was something of a disaster as a candidate for president. You remember how obnoxious he was at the debates. The idea that he finished uh, tied for first 
in this vice presidential straw poll is is just remarkable. Uh, and uh, they point out that this was the uh, uh, straw poll at the Conservative uh, Political Action Conference was the first time in years that a question about who Republicans should pick for vice president had overshadowed uh, the presidential nominee in the survey of attendees. That was partly because Mr. Trump won the presidential poll as expected in a landslide over Nikki Haley. How much was that landslide? Uh, President Trump won 94% of the vote. Uh, Nikki Haley got 5% of the vote. So that's a landslide. Uh, The last time Mr. Trump uh, was not the top choice for the White House among CPAC attendees was in 2016 when Senator Ted Cruz of uh, Texas uh, finished first. The uh, other names that appeared on this vice presidential list, several Republicans viewed as contenders to be Mr. Trump's running mate, gave speeches at the event. They included uh, Representative Byron Donalds of Florida on Thursday, Ms. Noam, uh, Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, and Representative uh, Elise Stefanik of New York on Friday, and Carrie Lake, the Arizona Senate candidate, on Saturday. Mr. Ramaswamy spoke on both Friday and Saturday. Well, that's natural. He was fairly aggressive in those debates, too, right? Ms. Noam and Mr. Ramaswamy each gathered 15% of the vote in the straw poll. A former representative, Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, who ran for president as a Democrat in 2020, but has since left the party to become an independent, was third with 9%, followed by Ms. Stefanik and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, each with 8%. One of the advantages of Tim Scott is that he uh, has shown himself, I mean, obviously completely loyal to President Trump. It's been almost embarrassing, but part of... uh, what what has happened is uh, that they were doing a campaign event together and it's on tape and it's very visible where President Trump uh, brought up that uh, uh, Tim Scott had been appointed to the U.S. Senate. He was a member of the House of Representatives. He had been appointed to the U.S. Senate by Governor Nikki Haley. And he said, boy, she appointed you for Senate and now you're endorsing me. He says, you must really hate her. And uh, and Tim Scott was standing right there, and he came forward to the microphone, and he said, uh, "No, I I don't hate her. I just really love you." And and violins played in the background, and little chirping birds. Yes, here is the actual exchange. Listen, two great senators, which is hard. I mean, did you ever think that? She actually appointed you, Tim. And think of it, appointed, and you're the senator of his state, and she endorsed me. You must really hate her. No, it's uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. Uh-oh. I just love you. No, that's, that's why he's a great politician. 
And uh, there is a I, – I have a new on Substack, a, a lesson from Pence, why Tim Scott makes sense as Trump's running mate. And the reason I say a lesson from Pence is Pence in his uh, acceptance speech when he was nominated for vice president, he said, uh, uh, look, uh, President uh, Trump – or at that time it was Mr. Trump. He was not elected president yet. Uh, he said uh, – my running mate is is noted for his charisma. He has lots of charisma. His colorful personality. Uh, he is a very very big presence wherever he goes, and uh, I guess he named me to get some balance on the ticket, which was self deprecating, but it was also true because there's always an edge to anger, uh, of anger to President Trump, and whenever he's running, and. Mike Pence does not appear to be angry about anything. Uh, he's genial, self-deprecating, and they got along fine until there was a question of uh, uh, Pence, as he puts it, uh, loving the Constitution uh, and being more loyal to the Constitution than he was to President Trump. But in any event, of the candidates for vice president, the possibilities who are most like Mike Pence— uh, genial and self-deprecating and positive uh, and calm, uh, then Tim Scott comes the closest. He also has that great story of uh, going from uh, slavery to the Senate in just three generations. And uh, he has a great way of standing out against those people who believe that America is incurably racist and a guilty, horrible place. He says, look at the story of my family. Oh, and there's one other thing about Tim Scott that could help him. Uh, it's a very personal thing. Uh, what is it? Uh, let me get to that in just a moment here on The Medved Show. Why Tim Scott, among many other things, makes sense as Trump's running mate. We'll be right back. Your outlet for outrage. Outrageous. The Michael Medved Show. More of Michael Medved in a moment. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, speaking for a moment about the straw poll for uh, vice president. Uh, now, the straw poll doesn't mean anything. Uh, sometimes uh, there are uh, presidents who have taken it seriously, but I don't think there's ever been a situation where they've had a straw poll for vice president where that has been the choice. Uh, and uh, we, we've had a number of choices that have sort of come out of nowhere. Nobody expected, uh, you didn't hear people predicting in advance that Mike Pence would be the choice for Donald Trump, and partially because in so many ways they were opposites. Uh, and, uh, I mean, Mike Pence being genial and soft-spoken and, and making fun of the fact that he was not a candidate with big charisma, the bull in the china shop type who's going to break things up. He's someone who had been a very well-respected member of Congress and had been a successful governor. 
and uh, was known for bringing people along through persuasion, not by assaulting them. And uh, Tim Scott has the same advantages as Mike Pence. And part of it is that both Pence and Scott are very outspoken Christians. And I mean, I hate to say it, but I think that uh, the the idea that they are very serious about their faith and uh, very much trying to practice their faith is quite obvious for Mike Pence, quite obvious for Senator Tim Scott, not quite as obvious for Donald Trump, I hate to say it, but a lot of people say that the match between uh, the religious conservatives in this country and Donald Trump, who, uh, of course, <laughs> had, had his biggest business reversals ever running casinos, it, it just the, the idea of, of people who are trying to get folks to do Bible study when... when uh, uh, Tim Scott met his fiancée, and that was the other factor that I think makes Tim Scott a desirable running mate, is uh, he's 58 years old. He's a bachelor. He's never uh, been uh, engaged or married. Uh, his wife has three children from a previous marriage, his soon-to-be wife. But he just got engaged at the very end of his presidential campaign, uh, with a woman named Mindy Nosh, who's an interior decorator from the Charleston area. And she says she met him in church. And when they met in church the first time, he said uh, he invited her to do Bible study with him. And she accepted, and, and now they're engaged. I don't know if they have a date for the wedding, but uh, they they look lovely together. And uh, when when Tim Scott finished the fourth debate which was the last one in which he participated before he dropped out of the race and endorsed Trump. Um, Tim Scott brought up a Mindy, his fiancée, and introduced her to the country, and that was a uh, very positive thing. I think that with all of that going on, and uh, the, the theme of the Trump campaign has been uh, largely retribution, uh, getting even, uh, going after people, and talking about how America is such, in such terrible decline. Uh, Tim Scott balances that by a very different view about how wonderful America is, how it is a land of opportunity, that any land, any nation that can have the Tim Scott story, the story of his family, and uh, the the story of how well he and his brother have done in this family and in this country, it's a, a very welcome balance. And anyway, uh, I, I just do think it's such a logical choice. And plus, uh, President Trump seems to like Tim Scott and particularly like Tim Scott's uh, very active role in helping to win the primary against Nikki Haley in South Carolina. Now, all of this takes us back to uh, C CPAC, and there was a, a fascinating comment from uh, David Axelrod, former campaign manager for Barack Obama, who had advice for the Biden campaign regarding CPAC. Uh, listen, this is clip eight. If I were the uh, Biden campaign, I would pay to have every American 
see the yeah. CPAC convention? Because the thing that has been thwarting Republicans uh, in the midterms and since has been this impression of the Republican Party as an extreme party. Yesterday, you had someone stand up at the CPAC convention as speaker and basically talk about we're going to we, we, we start we almost toppled democracy on January 6th. We're going to do it now with this. And he held up a cross basically advocating for theocracy. Uh, this is not the image that the Republican Party wants. Okay, and the the other image that the Republican Party doesn't want is the image of the big lie, of the idea that the election was a fraud, that Biden isn't a legitimate president. It's true. There are a majority of Republicans who believe that, but they are very separate from the non-Republicans, virtually none of whom believe that. In other words, if you get two-thirds of the Republicans, uh, who are about one-third of the country, and then the other independents and Democrats actually think that uh, Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States, even if you think he's done a terrible job, then that is a division between you and the rest of the country. And having people chant at uh, CPAC, as you heard from uh, Steve Bannon, Trump won, Trump won, Trump won. It's not a good move. It's also, it seems to me, not a, a good move uh, when Carrie Lake, now she didn't say this at CPAC, but during the time of CPAC on Fox News, she talked about Biden having created the border crisis intentionally. Uh, listen, this is clip 23. So this is affecting us. Not only that, we look at what's happening with our hospitals where they're overrun with people here illegally, not paying the bill. The hospital in Yuma is um, at risk of going under because of that. They've got $20 million in unpaid bills. And if, if we lose a hospital in a town like Yuma, that is that's an important hospital. There's not a secondary and a backup op option if we lose these hospitals because they can no longer do business. So it's affecting us greatly. The fentanyl pouring across our children getting access to that or, or dying because of it. It's got to stop. Joe Biden could stop it first thing tomorrow morning if he really wanted to. But he doesn't. This is by design. I think he created this problem intentionally. Okay, why would Joe Biden create this problem intentionally? I mean, seriously, do you think that Joe Biden wants people to be angry at him? That he wants people to be disappointed in his leadership? I mean, doesn't that seem uh, a, a bit much? It's the same sort of thing that uh, uh, Marco Rubio basically ended his campaign uh, based upon that. They had a debate in New Hampshire where he said that he thought that uh, uh, Barack Obama was uh, damaging the country, trying to ruin the country intentionally. Making that kind of accusation against uh, your opponent, especially when the opponent is the president of the United States. The last night, they had a, a, a banquet at the White House for the National Governors Association. And all the GOP governors, there was a GOP governor who's in chair of the National Governors Association, Spencer Cox of Utah. And he said, Mr. President, he said to Joe Biden, I want you to know that our family prays for you and your family every night. 
We pray that you will be successful because if you are successful, that means that the United States of America is successful. And tonight, we are always Americans first, so thank you. Uh, isn't that a better way to look at the other side? Uh, we will be right back looking at the other side on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. I really enjoy your program. I listen to talk radio all day. You're definitely right up there, the cream of the crop. This is The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved show, we were talking earlier about uh, Tim Scott uh, as a potential running mate for Donald Trump. And a lot of people have a simplistic view of this. It's that, oh, oh uh, Trump is going to be making a big pitch for the black vote. He already is uh, showing that he's getting many, many, many more black votes than he did the last time. Last time he ran for president, he got 8% of the african-american vote this time he's already getting 22 percent and he could do even better the the point about this is i don't think it's that simple i think that uh the, the taking away from the republican party that idea that the republican party is only uh, middle-aged white guys playing golf uh getting rid of that that stereotype is is certainly useful for the party but when trump tells black conservatives that uh he thinks that uh, black conservatives like him because of the ch criminal charges against him is that really a, a useful or valid or appropriate a way of looking at racial politics in the country. Here is the clip 10 from uh, uh, former President Trump. Black conservatives understand better than most that some of the greatest evils in our nation's history have come from corrupt systems that try to target and subjugate others to deny them their freedom and to deny them their rights. You understand that. I think that's why the black people are so much on my side now because they see what's happening to me happens to them. These lights are so bright in my eyes that I can't see too many people out there. But uh, I can only see the black ones. I can't see any white ones, you see? That's how far I've come. Okay, uh, that was similar to his comment uh, or I think it was maybe not Trump's personal comment. It may have been someone from the campaign that because he was putting out those gold-plated sneakers, that was going to be a secret key to the black vote. Uh, I mean, really? Really? That uh, By the way, this is also similar to comparing himself to uh, uh, Alexei Navalny. Uh, that he is being persecuted. Uh, the the Trump motto, uh, and it was a motto that I've used for years and years and years on this show, is that, that part of what being an American means is I am not a victim. Uh, when you are a citizen of the United States, when you uphold American values, you recognize that you basically are the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. You, you're in charge of your own destiny. 
And the idea of Trump uh, emphasizing his victimhood status and claiming that uh, he is like Navalny, who they're trying to put him in jail forever, and uh, that he is uh, uh, somehow represented the same kind of sluffer, uh, suffering and uh, the same kind of uh, victimization by a corrupt system as black people who are subject to one of the greatest evils in all of human history, which was slavery. In any event, uh, Nikki Haley uh, was very direct with a persistent Brett Bear on Fox News about the possibility of her running with uh, Donald Trump, which m most people have stopped talking about even, but they certainly will now. Clip six. He would be uh, your running mate if you so chose that. Would you? I'm a Republican. I'm running as a Republican. I'm running trying to wake people up that if they nominate Donald Trump in this primary, we will lose a general election. Mark my words. Okay, uh, that's uh, pretty clear. And uh, she was also said something about Trump who had uh, made fun of the fact that her husband was away on deployment. He's with the National Guard. He is doing his military service. But uh, she said this in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, on Friday, clip four. Donald Trump's never been near a uniform. We all know veterans. We all know people who've lost their lives in service. It's personal for us. He's never been near a uniform. He's never had to sleep on the ground. The closest he's ever come to harm's way is if a golf ball happens to hit him on the golf course. Uh, and uh, then, then again, when it comes to potential running mates, somebody who clearly wants to be Trump's running mate or as a member of his cabinet, Marjorie Taylor Greene just said she would uh, certainly be honored to be a vice presidential nominee, but she really wants to be Secretary of Homeland Security. But uh, Trump then spoke in Rock Hill, South Carolina, about how much he admires Marjorie Taylor Greene. Clip five. Now a really shy person, a person that, I mean, honestly, she's a good person. She's been with me for so long. She's been with me in good times, in bad times. If times are bad, she'll call me up and say, don't worry about it, sir, you're doing great. And if times are good, she'll call me up twice. But she's a fantastic person. She's a very smart person and very respected in Congress. A lot of people don't know how respected she is. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's pretty good, huh? That's good. Great person. Uh, well, again, uh, it's very nice. I'm sure that made Marjorie Taylor Greene feel just great as did uh, Gavin Newsom make President Biden feel just great uh, when he spoke, uh, the governor of California, about Biden's record as president. Clip 13. 76% of voters say they have real concerns about President Biden's ability to serve a second term. Do you think it's responsible for Democrats to put him at the top of the ticket, given those concerns? Responsible. I revere his record. I, I mean, this, what he's done in three years has been a master class, close to 15 million jobs. That's eight times more than the last three Republican presidents 
combined. The economy is booming. Inflation is cooling. It's 0.6% more than it was in the summer of 2020 at just 3.1%. Wait a second. We have American manufacturing coming back home all because of Biden's wisdom, because of his temperance, his yeah. capacity to lead in a bipartisan manner, which is an under represented point. And so I have great confidence moving forward. So the answer is absolutely all in in terms of the next four years, the, Joe Biden. A bipartisan manner, really? Uh, there was bipartisan unanimity on something, uh, which was a movie that came out uh, back in November of last year. And the movie... Uh, generally heralded as the worst movie so far, except for maybe Madam Web, which is newer, but from the Marvel comic universe. Uh, listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. In 2019, the Marvel comic universe welcomed a female superhero, Captain Marvel, played by Brie Larson, and now she's back, teamed with two other pals in The Marvels, now playing in theaters. We've destroyed Thanos, but it's not over. My work is inevitable. There will always be more to finish it. I'm asking for one last fight. That's Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury, and there's more than one fight in the course of this complicated and meandering movie. People who never saw the first film, and that's most of humanity, will feel lost and bewildered, though Iman Vellani does a decent job as a New Jersey teenager with magical powers and a mystical bracelet. It's rated PG-13 for mostly tiresome slam-bang battles. Two stars for the Marvels. No, not a Marvel, only occasionally adequate. And very occasionally adequate, uh, not worth the investment of time. Uh, we'll be focusing on some of the Oscar movies that people haven't seen. There are a bunch of Oscar movies that, that actually I think many people would thoroughly enjoy, but that came out too late in the year. Some of them uh, very small films, but movies like Past Lives or Anatomy of a Fall or uh, American fiction. Uh, these are all Oscar contenders and real Oscar contenders with nominations.